This afternoon we come to the end of the story of Jonah, and so if you'd like to turn your Bibles to Jonah chapter 4, that's going to be our scripture reading for this afternoon. Jonah 4 can be found on page 921 in our Emmanuel Bible, is 921, if you're using the Pew Bible. You recall from this morning that the recommissioned prophet took the word of the Lord into the city of Nineveh, and, and he proclaimed to that city yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And boys and girls, what happened? The people of Nineveh believed God. And not just the people of Nineveh, but also the king of Nineveh. And they repented. They humbled themselves before the Lord. And then, how did God respond? He heard at the end of chapter 3, verse 10, that when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Now as we come to Jonah chapter 4, we see Jonah's response to God's response. Whoever has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to us this afternoon. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh? And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do, not, who do not know their right hand from their left and so much cattle. There ends the reading of God's holy word. May he bless it to us as we meditate upon it this afternoon. Dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, I trust that for most of us, the story of Jonah is not only marked by its familiarity, but also by its relatability. 
Because as we read through the story of Jonah, we see that there's a little bit of Jonah in all of us. And so when we read about the Lord's dealings with Jonah, we can't help but, but take a step back and say, the Lord has dealt similarly with me. When I was on the run from God, he, he rescued me. And in the midst of my rebellion, God was patient with me. He, he sent a trial my way. He sent a great storm, like in Jonah chapter 1, to, to bring me to my senses. And he was gracious not only to rescue me, but also to, to recommission me and, and to use me again in his service. And now as we come to Jonah chapter 4, we discover is that God's grace toward us is never a, a one and done sort of thing. God's gracious dealings with us as people is not a, a three strikes and you're out situation. The story of Jonah reminds us that ours is a God who never leaves us, who never forsakes us. The story of Jonah assures us that ours is a God who who stays with us even even when we have fallen yet again. Sometimes he appoints a great fish to rescue us, to to bring us to our senses. Other times he appoints a, a shady plant to refresh us. And still other times he appoints a worm and a scorching east wind to rebuke us. But the point is this. He stays with us. He doesn't leave us or forsake us. But like that patient farmer from Jesus' parable in Luke 13, he he says, let's give it another year. When the fruits of our faith appear to be nowhere to be seen, rather than simply cutting us down in disgust, like the patient farmer from Jesus' parable, God says, let's give it another year. Let let me tend to him by my word. Let me me work in her heart by my spirit. Let's give it another year and see what next year brings. This is what we see here in God's dealings with Jonah. The spiritual journey of Jonah seems to be a story of of one step forward and then two steps back. And I trust that that's something that all of us here can relate to. One step forward, two steps back. The runaway prophet of Chapter 1 became the rescue prophet of chapter 2. Jonah prayed to God and God delivered him. And then the rescued prophet became the, the recommissioned prophet. Jonah listened to God and he went to Nineveh and he preached the word of God and, and Nineveh believed. What progress we've, we've seen with Jonah. But now we come to chapter 4 verse 1 where we read that it displeased Jonah Exceedingly. And we say, really, Jonah? Really, Jonah? And don't get me wrong, we should say that. We should be appalled at Jonah's response. But we shouldn't say, really, Jonah? Without asking the same question of ourselves. Because here in Jonah chapter 4, the Spirit of Christ bids us to examine our own lives. He, 
bids us to examine our own hearts, our own thoughts, our own attitudes. He bids you to look in the mirror. He bids me to look in the mirror. And he bids us to say, really? Really, Pastor Deswar? Really, Emmanuel? Really, God has been so gracious with you, but now you're going to turn around and and hope that that guy gets what's coming to him? Really? Really? And as we look in the mirror, God gently rebukes us. And he says, don't you understand grace at all? Don't you know who I am? Don't you know something of my heart for sinners that I am gracious and merciful toward those who do not deserve it? Don't you know that that this is what the cross is all about, that I'm the God who loves the unlovely and the unlovable? And he says, and don't you know that when Jesus said, whoever would be my disciple must take up his cross and follow me, that Jesus was saying, whoever would be my disciple must be like me. He must love his enemies and seek their good. You see, if we truly love the Lord, then we'll love those whom he loves. That's what Jonah 4 teaches us. If we truly love God, then we will love those whom God loves. As we work our way through this last portion of the story of Jonah, we're going to consider three things together this afternoon. In the first place, we're going to consider the resentful prophet. We're going to consider why exactly it was that Jonah was so displeased. Why was Jonah so angry? And in the second place, we're going to consider the lesson of the rebuking parable. In verses 5 through 9, the Lord seeks to teach Jonah a lesson about grace with an acted parable. And that lesson serves to graciously rebuke Jonah. It seeks to to bring Jonah to his senses. And in the third place, we'll consider the remarkable pity. The remarkable pity of the Lord who, who has compassion on those who are so blinded by their sin that they do not know their left hand from their right. But in the first place, we're confronted with the prophet's resentment. In verse 1, we read that it displeased Jonah exceedingly And he was angry. Or to translate it more literally, but it was a very evil thing to Jonah. And he was angry. And the question that arises out of this first verse is, of course, what does the word it refer to? What was it that so displeased Jonah? What was it that Jonah regarded to be an evil thing? We find the answer in chapter 3, verse 10, that when God saw what Nineveh did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. That's the it that verse 1 refers to. In other words, it was God's mercy. It was God's mercy that so displeased Jonah. It was God's mercy that, that made Jonah so angry. That's what we discover in these first four verses of our passage. In each verse, Jonah is is standing opposed to God's mercy. And in each verse, he's he's challenging divine mercy. In verse 1, he stands opposed to to the work of mercy, the work that God did in Nineveh, causing Nineveh to, to believe his word and to repent of their sins. 
It was perhaps one of the greatest revivals of human history. It should have thrilled Jonah's heart. He should have rejoiced at Nineveh's repentance. But instead, it displeased him greatly. Instead, it provoked him to anger. Jonah stands opposed to the work of mercy. He responds to God's mercy in the same way that that the older brother did in Jesus' parable, the prodigal son. When the older brother was told, your brother has come home, your father has slayed a fattened calf, and your, your brother, he is a home, alive, safe and sound. How did the older brother respond? Jesus says the older brother was angry, and he refused to go in. That's the kind of anger that Jonah has here. After all, how could God welcome Nineveh into his good graces when, when Nineveh had, had sinned against him so greatly. Jonah's anger, says one writer, wells up from the depths of his being. He is like a child throwing a temper tantrum. But his anger is not directed at Nineveh, but it's directed against the Lord. He's accusing the Lord of doing a great evil by having compassion on Nineveh. Isn't that we see more clearly still in verses 2 and following? In verse 1, Jonah stands opposed to the work of mercy, but now in verse 2, he, he challenges the heart of mercy. He, he challenges God himself, and he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting over disaster. With these words, Jonah is standing opposed to the heart of mercy. He's standing opposed. He's challenging God himself. Jonah, it would seem, cannot come to terms with the heart of God for sinners. Once again, Jonah is is holding on to grace with a tightly clenched fist. And he's forgotten the church's missionary calling. What was the church's missionary calling? The church's missionary calling was encapsulated in her missionary hymn, the words that we sang from Psalm 67. O God, to us show mercy and bless us in thy grace. Cause now to shine upon us the brightness of thy face. Why? That so your name most holy on earth may soon be known and unto every people, unto every people your saving grace be shown. Jonah has forgotten the church's missionary calling. Sure, Jonah preached the message that God gave him to preach, but apparently he had no love whatsoever for those who were intended by God to hear it. Jonah is holding on to grace with a tightly clenched fist. He's being stingy with grace. Jonah's heart is not reflecting God's heart. To be sure, God's grace was was good for Israel. It's great for Israel, but but for Nineveh, how can Nineveh participate in the blessings that belong to Israel? The Ninevites had done horrible things. The Assyrians had devastated the nations around them. They were violent and cruel. How then could God forgive the people of Nineveh for all the evil they had done? 
One pastor observes that Jonah seems to be more upset with Nineveh's deliverance than God was upset with Nineveh's sin. Jonah is angry about who God is. Jonah is angry about the fact that God is so unlike us, that when it comes to his grace and mercy, his ways are not our ways, and his thoughts are are not our thoughts. They're higher than our ways. They're greater than our ways. And if we don't recognize that we sometimes think the same way, then we're simply fooling ourselves. Because, as I said, there's a little bit, if not a lot of it, of Jonah in all of us. Because every grudge that we hold on to is holding on to grace with a tightly clenched fist. Every desire for revenge, holding on to grace with a tightly clenched fist. Every time you return evil for evil, holding on to grace with a tightly clenched fist. Every time you refuse to to forgive your brother or sister who has offended you. Every time you, you stoke the fire of your anger by rehearsing past wrongs against you. You're holding on to grace with a tightly clenched fist. You're saying that grace is good for you, but not for him. When it comes to that person, you want him to get what's coming to him. That's holding on to grace with a tightly clenched fist. And it's not Christ-like. It's not Christ-like. And in verse 3, we learn that this attitude, that this Jonah-like spirit only makes us miserable. That's all it does. In the end, it only sours us to the grace that God has shown to us. Listen again to how Jonah ends his complaint. Having just rehearsed and confessed who God is, a, a gracious God and merciful, abounding in steadfast love, relenting over disaster, what does Jonah say? Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. Or stated another way, Lord, I'd rather die than see Nineveh delivered. I'd rather die, Lord, than, than see Nineveh treated like Israel. Jonah can't find it in his heart to forgive Nineveh as the Lord has forgiven Nineveh. And so he's become sour to who God is. This characterization of God as being gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, you may know that that, the revelation of God's character as being those things was revealed to Moses at the very time when, when Israel was worshiping the golden calf. What a glorious and gracious God was the God of Israel, unlike any other God in all the world. And now Jonah's bitterness and resentment has soured him to who God is. He cannot forgive Nineveh as God has. And the question that we're confronted with this afternoon is can you? Can you? Can you find it in your heart to forgive that person who who knifed you in the back? Can you find it in your heart to to examine God's mercy, to, to consider God's compassion 
And can you find in your heart to study God's compassion in such a way that, that His compassion is the measuring rod that you use in your compassion towards those around you? Can you find in your heart to use God's compassion as the measuring rod for your willingness to forgive and forget? To quote one writer, being out of tune with God, Jonah is a man most miserable. This is where his resentment has gotten him. He's ready to die. But how does the Lord respond to Jonah's resentment? Once again, in verse 4, the Lord pursues his wayward prophet. The Lord comes to Jonah and the Lord confronts Jonah. And he gently rebukes Jonah with the probing question Do you do well to be angry? And in so doing, he gently rebukes you and me as well. He asks us in the midst of our resentment, do you do well to be angry? How's that working out for you? That's what God asks, like Dr. Phil does, right? How does that work out for you? Do you do well to be angry? How tender and patient the Lord is with Jonah. First, Jonah runs away, then he repents and finally does what he's told, but only to to take it all back. One step forward, two steps back. That's Jonah. It's almost as though his fingers were, were crossed behind his back as he was preaching in Nineveh. Because all the while he was doing the Lord's will, he was begrudging it. He was a half-hearted preacher. He knew that the Lord's desire was to deliver Nineveh, but his desire was for God to destroy Nineveh. His fingers were crossed behind his back. Perhaps some of us do that. We're holding on to a ground. You want to see that person get what's coming to him. But then we come to church on Sunday and we sing, Thy loving kindness, Lord, is good and free. In tender mercy turn thou unto me, but not unto him. Just unto me. We come to church, we do the will of God, we sing the songs, we sit in the pews. But perhaps we're begrudging His will in our hearts. Do you do well to be angry? Are you experiencing the joy of the Christian life that way? Well, Jonah doesn't answer the question. In verse 5, we read that Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what should become of the city. So out of sync and out of step with the heart of the Lord, Jonah sets up a little camp and he, and he starts counting down the days, day 40, day 39, day 38, and so on. And as Jonah looks over the city, he's hoping that God will change his mind. That's what Jonah is doing. He's hoping that God will change his mind after all and destroy the city. What a stark contrast. What a stark contrast between the prophet Jonah and the prophet Jesus. Jonah looks over the city of Nineveh and he desires that they would be destroyed. 
In contrast, consider the Lord Jesus. Consider those, those windows into his heart from the Gospels. When the Gospel writers tell us about Jesus looking over various cities. You could turn over, for example, to Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. There, Matthew tells us that how Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing those with sicknesses. And then Matthew tells us that when Jesus saw the crowds of the cities, he had compassion on them because he saw that they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. You could turn to Luke chapter 9, verse 54. When his disciples, James and John, saw that Samaria did not receive him, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven to consume them? And how did Jesus respond? Luke tells that Jesus turned around and he rebuked them. And then there's perhaps the most striking example of all in Luke chapter 13, verse 24. Because in Luke 13, Jesus sets his sights upon the city of Jerusalem, the city that's going to be delivering him over to be crucified. And what does Jesus do? What does Jesus say? Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children under my... gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under his wings and you are not willing. And he laments over their unbelief. What a contrast between the prophet Jesus and the prophet Jonah. What a contrast between Jesus and me, between Jesus and you. Even when he was on the cross, as those around him were mocking him, what did he say? Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Jonah lamented over the fact that a repentant city was to be delivered. Jesus lamented over the fact that unrepentant Jerusalem needed to be judged according to God's justice. But once again, what does the Lord do? The Lord graciously pursues Jonah. Verse 6, Now the Lord appointed a a plant and made it come up over Jonah so that he might have shade for his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. And by causing this plant to to grow and to give Jonah shade, it's almost almost as though the Lord is, is saying, Don't you see, Jonah? Don't you see that that my mercy is so big that there's room for Israel and Nineveh? Don't you see, Jonah, that, that my showing love to Nineveh doesn't mean I, I love you any less? God's refreshing grace comes to Jonah at a time when he does not deserve it. But that's the way it always is with God's grace, isn't it? That's what makes grace, grace. But as I said this morning, although it's true that God's grace always comes to us as we are, it never leaves us as we are, God's grace always serves a purpose to 
to lead us to repentance. As the apostle says in in Titus chapter 2, God's grace always serves to train us, to teach us to, to renounce all ungodliness, to renounce all worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. And God has a lesson for Jonah as well. God intends to teach Jonah the error of his ways. And so what does God do when he sees Jonah rejoicing over the plant? I have a plant. What does God do? But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. Four times in the story of Jonah, we read that the Lord appointed or prepared something for Jonah. First, he prepared a a great fish. Then he prepared a refreshing plant. Then a a hungry worm. Then a, a, a scorching east wind. And in each instance, we're shown something of the manner in which the Lord deals with his children. In big ways and in small ways, the Lord intervenes. He, he invests himself in our lives in such a way that, as Paul says in Romans 8, for those who love God, all things work together for their good. All things work together for good because everything that God sends our way, both the good things as well as the bad things, both the joyful things as well as the, discipline, as well as the difficult things, all things serve to teach us something about who God is. All these things serve to teach us something about who we should be. But Jonah is hard of understanding. He's not learning the lesson. Because again, we read in verse 8 that he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But how again does God respond? Verse 9, do you do well to be angry? But this time he adds, over the plant? Do you do well to be angry over the plant? By specifying over the plant, God is seeking to Prick Jonah's conscience. His intention is to make Jonah see just how petty he is being. Jonah laments over the perishing of a plant, but not over the potential perishing of a city? Really, Jonah? But how does Jonah respond to the Lord? He digs his heels in. Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. But in verses 10 and 11, the Lord gets the last word. In verse 10, the Lord graciously rebukes him again. And in verse 11, he graciously reminds him again of who he is. In all this, we have to recognize that the Lord would have been perfectly just to simply leave Jonah to his own devices. Just as God would have been just to destroy Nineveh, so too God would have been perfectly just to simply leave Jonah there to wallow in his misery. God could have been just to to answer Jonah's request and simply take his life away. But instead, the Lord gently rebukes him again. Instead, he reminds him again of who he is. 
And the Lord said, You pay the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perish in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh? And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their left hand from their right and also so much cattle? This last question is meant to stir Jonah to a repentant frame of mind. Does Jonah really want to find fault with God for being too gracious and too loving? Do you really want to find fault with God for being too gracious and being too loving when God's grace and God's love is exactly what you stand in need of every moment of every day of your life? As I said, the Lord gets the last word. His question goes unanswered. The Spirit doesn't tell us how Jonah responded. I suppose we can imagine he responded this way or that way. I I certainly have my suspicions that Jonah responded positively, but the Spirit doesn't tell us. Rather, the Spirit leaves us in suspense. In His wisdom, the Spirit of Christ leaves us with the question. And He And he presses this question upon us, this question that so accents the Lord's pity for his undeserving creatures because it's a question that ought to arrest us. It's a question that ought to to guide us in all of our dealings with each other and with the world. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? The Lord's pity is truly remarkable, is it not? I'm reminded of the words of Romans chapter 5 where where God answers his own question, as it were. And Paul tells us that while we were still sinners, while we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps... For a good person, one would bear even to die. But God shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God doesn't love us because we're so lovely or worthy of his affection. He loves us because that's who he is. He loves us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Upon whom the wrath of God against all our sins was placed. So, brothers and sisters, boys and girls, if you ever wonder whether or not God really loves you, if you ever wonder if God really has compassion for you, then just remember how Jonah ends. The last word in the book of Jonah is the word cattle. If God had compassion even for the cattle in Nineveh, how much more compassion must he have for you? a person who he's made in his own image. If God cared even for the cows of Nineveh, then how much mustn't he care for our world, our rebellious world, where people do not know their left hand from their right? We often look at the world around us 
in anger. And we often lack compassion. We listen to the diatribes of various progressives who are so militant against God's order for society and it angers us. And to some extent that's appropriate. There is a righteous anger that that weeps with the psalmist when God's commandments are not obeyed. But even our righteous anger must be tempered with Christ-like compassion. Even our righteous anger must be tempered with a Christ-like compassion that looks around and sees people as Jesus sees them. As those who do not know what they are doing as those who are so blinded by sin that they do not even know their left hand from their right. And we of all people should have compassion for such people. And we should pity them. And we should love them as God does. God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Ezekiel 18, 23. God is not willing that any should perish. 2 Peter 3, verse 9. God would have all men to be saved. 1 Timothy 2, verse 4. God loves the world. John 3, 16. This is God's heart revealed to sinners. This is God's heart revealed in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the greater prophet, the greater Jonah. You see, God's love is not a selfish kind of love. It's not a stingy kind of love. It's not a holding anything back kind of love. God doesn't hold on to grace with a tightly clenched fist. But he gives it freely. Thy loving kindness, Lord, is good and free. He gives it freely in his Son, And he doesn't give up on us. He doesn't leave us or forsake us. But he stays with us. In his tender mercy, he rescues us and he refreshes us. And he rebukes us. And he reminds us again and again of who he is. That's what God does for us. And in so doing, he calls us to learn from him. He calls us to mirror Christ's compassion to one another and to the world. He who testifies to all these things says, surely I am coming soon. And so we pray even so, come. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious God, Heavenly Father, we come before you again and we marvel at your grace, amazing grace that that saves wretches like us. Lord, we know that at one time we were blind, but now we see. We were lost, following the prince of the power of the air, walking with the sons of disobedience by nature, but we've been found. Father, as we marvel at your grace and mercy toward us and your Son, the Lord Jesus, as we 
marvel at your remarkable pity for sinners. We pray for the grace to reflect it. When we consider how you extend grace to us freely, may we not hold on to it with a tightly clenched fist, but may we give it freely to those around us as well. And in so doing, may a watching world see the Lord Jesus Christ in us. We confess, Lord, that there is sometimes a little bit, sometimes a lot of Jonah living in all of us. Father, we pray that you would put the Jonah that lives in us to death, that we may put on the prophet Jesus in increasing measure. Lord, forgive us when we've fallen short of these things. Sanctify us that we may do these things. For we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.